Well, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. And while you're finding Deuteronomy 5, we can make some useful comparisons between the general overall corporate actions of Israel as a nation and the individual relationship we have with God through Christ. It's not always a one-for-one correlation, and sometimes the comparison breaks down. For example, in the Old Testament, there are 19 ways to receive the death penalty. We don't have that in the church, and so we're glad for that. And so at times that correlation breaks down. And we always have to account for the fact that at any given time in Israel, even when she's at her worst, there are still faithful individuals. Habakkuk 2 verse 4, for example, makes this distinction that the righteous individuals will live by their faith. And so it is useful to make this comparison. And I think this is one of those times. And so in the the fairly lengthy session that we're going to consider tonight, a reasonable analogy can be drawn to the evidence of salvation, of how one knows that he is in a genuine covenant salvation relationship with God. And of course, as we've said before, true salvation is only in Christ, Christ yet to come if you're an Old Testament saint, and Christ who has already come if you're in the church age currently. Now, I'm going to come back to this evidence of covenant salvation in a moment, and we'll organize our thoughts. But first, I want to make a quick note. I told you I would do this, of where we are in the structure of Deuteronomy. Remember, in the the treaty or the covenant structure, last time we did the historical prologue, and now what we get into is the general stipulations, the overall principles which are to guide covenant obedience to the Lord, and which will be explained and elucidated even further in the section of specific stipulations. So tonight we're going to kind of take a broad flyover of the general stipulations in chapters 5 through 11, and then slow down for a few weeks when we get to the specific stipulations. So let's get back to the idea of the evidence of covenant salvation. What we're going to see is that the truly saved person believes certain things. As a nation, these are the things that Israel was to believe, but the lessons carry over very nicely to what the individual who claims to have faith in God through Christ believes with all of his heart. And so this might be uh, what we would call internal evidence of salvation. You're not looking at your life so much as you're looking at your heart, and this will be a good heart test. And so we'll go through a number of these evidences. The first one, the truly saved person believes in one law. The truly saved person believes in one law. At the end of chapter 4, from verses 41 through 49, we see an interlude between the first and the second speeches of Moses in Deuteronomy. And since we're in the large section known as the general stipulations, it shouldn't surprise us to note that the very first thing in his second message here is to, that Moses does, is to reaffirm the Ten Commandments. This is the core, this is the central feature of God's covenant with Israel. It is absolutely worth our time to read these first 22 verses. So follow along with me, Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, 
who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord for you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. And you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Now, when we went through Exodus, we detailed each of these commandments in one message. So I'll refer you to that message in Exodus 20. But there's a bigger issue to point out here. And that's the seeming paradox that we have right here. Just a few verses apart. Look back at chapter 4, verse 31. Chapter 4, verse 31 This is in his previous sermon. Chapter 4, verse 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Chapter 5, verse 3. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. Now, what is this? Did, did Moses forget what he said? Did he have uh, just kind of a, a senior moment here and forget what was in his last sermon? This isn't a mistake. It's not a contradiction. It's not two different covenants, by the way. The term covenant never appears in the Old Testament in plural form. There is one covenant between God and Israel. And Moses never hints that God needs to do something more or that this is somehow unfinished business from one generation to the next. Here's the basic lesson. Yes, this covenant was with the previous generation, but now it's with you. It concerns you. 
In fact, you know this, that he says in chapter 5, verse 4, to people who almost all of them were not even at Mount Sinai, they were born after Sinai, he says, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain as if they were there. God has already done everything necessary to make possible the obedience of every generation. So for this generation, this second generation, it's not enough to say, this is the law that my parents believed. Like we can't say, well, I know what my parents believed and so therefore I'll be in good with God. Moses says it's not enough. This generation has to make it their law, their standard, their authority. And there is only one law. Now, it's important for this generation to fully embrace and to obey the law of God. God says to Moses, chapter 5, verse 29, this is God's heart. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. What is the heart of the people that God is speaking of here? Two verses earlier, verse 27. The people have told Moses, go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. This is recounting the time at Sinai when the people said, go to God and yes, we will obey And God says in verse 29, oh, that they would keep that heart forever. From generation to generation in Israel, there's one law. There's no amendments, there's no changes, there's no corrections. And based on Israel's obedience or disobedience to this one law, then the blessings or curses outlined in chapters 28 and 29 would come upon them. Now, we know that the old covenant had an expiration date. That expiration date was the coming of Christ and the cross, who is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. He is the one who perfectly kept the law on behalf of all who had placed their faith in him. And the one who came as the final sacrifice now makes God's covenant with Israel move on to a new covenant. In fact, Hebrews 8.13 says, In speaking of a new covenant, he, that is Christ, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so now, under the new covenant, listen carefully, there's still only one law. There's still only one standard. It's still based and founded upon the very character of God. And so in representing God's will and character, the Old Testament and the New Testament are completely, utterly consistent with one another. We're called to search out the wisdom of God in the Scriptures To know that this alone is our view into the mind of God. And the moment that any extra biblical source, any source outside the Bible, ventures into inserting its own ideas into biblical truth, it's missed the mark. And we've missed the mark. That's why we're to be so discerning as readers. That yes, there's wonderful Christian books out there. But the minute that book begins to stray from what scripture says in explaining the Bible and the Bible alone, then it becomes not only useless, it becomes a liability. And that book at that point should not be up, up, and, up and down on your shelf. It should be sideways on your coffee table and used as a coaster. Because that's all it's good for at that point. That's what causes spiritual deception. Is sources other than scripture which begin that slippery path toward an alternative. But there's no substitute for the word of God alone. You know how the rabbis of old knew their Old Testament so incredibly well? Not rocket science. 
They simply saturated themselves in the Word of God every single day. They just read it a lot. That's it. The truly saved person believes in one law. Second, the truly saved person believes in one mediator. The truly saved person believes in one mediator. Now, in chapter, chapter 5, verses 23 through 27, Moses reminds this second generation that their fathers, after seeing the fiery glory of God burning on Mount Sinai and the voice of holy, almighty Yahweh thundering, he reminds them that the people cried out. Look with, cha- with me at chapter 5, verse 25. They cried out, Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. And that's when they eagerly request in verse 27 that Moses speak to God on their behalf and that, that he speaks to them on God's behalf. In other words, they couldn't stand to be that close to the glory of God. They said, we need a mediator. We need someone between us. And there could only be one, and that mediator would be the only one that God would choose, in this case, Moses. Now, this is where we can see in Deuteronomy that Moses takes on very much the mantle of intercessor between God and God's people. In fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy itself illustrates that Moses is now cast in this role of mediator who is the same as the people and yet set apart from them, elevated above them. Watch this. In chapters 1 through 4, the historical prologue that we looked at last week, Moses identifies with the people greatly. He speaks of God. He speaks of our God 10 times, and he speaks of your God 28 times. In other words, Moses is significantly identifying as a fellow Israelite. Our God, our God, our God 10 times. But beginning in chapter 5, all the way through chapter 28, Moses refers to God as Our God, meaning I'm with you, I'm like you. He refers to our God in those 24 chapters two times. He refers to God as your God 250 times. He is now elevated. He's different. He's separate. He is the same, and yet he is different. He is much more associated with being God's mediator than he is as one of the people of Israel. Why is this the case? Well, the New Testament explains this. The New Testament presents Moses as what's called a type or a foreshadowing or kind of a a preview of Christ. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 1, says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Jesus is compared to Moses. And so Moses gives us a model, an example of the fact that there is only one mediator. Now, he is a lesser example. The next few verses in Hebrews 3 says that while Moses was like a faithful servant in the household of God, Jesus is the faithful son in the household. But the message is very clear. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. This is very important. This is, in fact, a salvation issue. This is not a secondary theological issue. The truly saved person believes in one mediator. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. You may remember a while back that uh, Joel Osteen 
became infamous for saying publicly that Jesus is the way to God, but there are many paths to Jesus. And of course, he never explained what those paths are because it came out of his mouth on national television and he didn't have an explanation. But the Bible says there's one path to Christ. What is that path? Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What is the word of Christ? Generally speaking, the entire Bible, specifically, we could cite what Jesus said is the pathway to himself. He said in Mark 1, 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in what? The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel says that I'm a heinous sinner in need of forgiveness And I must come to the one and through the one who said he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. There is one mediator. Third, the truly saved person believes in one Lord. He believes in one Lord. Probably the most famous part of Deuteronomy is the Shema. This is a transliteration of the Hebrew command to hear or to listen This is, so to speak, the motto of the faithful in Israel. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And here it is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, there's a translation challenge here because it's a little difficult to actually figure out what he's saying. The Hebrew is Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. This leaves us with a lot of possibilities. Is it Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone? Speaking of the uniqueness of God, that sounds reasonable. Is it Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one? Speaking of the unity, the wholeness of God. Is it Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one? That's the traditional translation. Is it Yahweh, our God, is one Yahweh? There's only one God. Well, that's true also. Probably the best view is explained by the context, though. The context is found in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. In other words, yes, God is the only true God. God is the singular God who calls for a singular commitment And now that Israel is surrounded by peoples with a plurality of false deities, there is no other God but Yahweh. So what is this? The best view, I believe, is that this is a declaration of loyalty. Yahweh our God, Yahweh alone. This is the banner. This is waving the flag. This is the flagpole, and you're putting up the flag that says, Yahweh our God, Yahweh alone. He is the one that we serve. Now, continuing revelation will reveal that God is one God in how many persons? Three persons. And we say something similar, that we worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. That's our Shema. Now, for us in the 21st century, we might very easily say, well, of course there's only one God. 
We all know that. But the Shema is a cry of affirmation and loyalty to the Lordship of God, that he's to be obeyed as a sign of true conversion, of genuine faith. This is God saying, you will listen to me, the Lord our God. He is one. It is Yahweh, our God, Yahweh alone. All the way back in 1955, way ahead of his time, the doctor, as he was affectionately known, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, he warned the church of the dangers and the folly of the popular idea of Christ becoming your Savior at one point in time and your Lord at a different point. Listen to his rebuttal and his rebuke of this heretical view, and he's 30 years ahead of his time. He said this, Probably you have heard people say, You can take Christ as your Savior, but perhaps you will not take him as your Lord for years. For a long time, they say, you may be a Christian. Yes, you have believed in him as your Savior, but then after all these years of struggling, at long last, you surrender to him and you take him as your Lord. This teaching is not only wrong, it is impossible. You cannot divide this person. He is always Jesus Christ, our Lord. You cannot say he is only Jesus or only Christ or only Lord. And then he points out that Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And some would say, well, I received Christ Jesus and he is the Lord. He's just not my Lord. And if you say that, you just say, well, then you just said you're not a Christian. Because he cannot be your Savior only and not your Lord. There's one law, there's one mediator, there's one Lord. Fourth, the truly saved person believes in one love. In one love. What's the clear expected response to the fact that there is one Lord? We already read it, but verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And here's the logic, and this makes sense. If there's one Lord, then how do you demonstrate loyal and true love? How do you show your love for this one Lord? Verse 6, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart by obeying the commandments of God, by knowing His word, not to gain salvation, because by faith you have salvation. In other words, to say that God is your Savior but not your Lord is to say that neither is He my Savior. Why would, you, why would you not want to show that Christ is your Lord? Why would you want to say, thank you for saving me, but now I'm going to ignore everything you speak into my life? That makes no sense. And by the way, just in case anyone thinks this is maybe stretching the point, this entire section, Deuteronomy 5 through 11, the general stipulations, this whole section is bookended by the theme of the whole section. This is called an inclusio, where you have a beginning and an ending that's exactly the same. Let me show you. Chapter 5, verse 1. Look with me at that. Chapter 5, verse 1. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Now, turn to chapter 11, the very end of the chapter, verse 32. Chapter 11, verse 32, the last verse of this entire section of the general stipulations. You shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. That's what this whole section is about. 
And how does the next major section, the specific stipulations, begin? Just in case we didn't get it the first 500 times. Chapter 12, verse 1. These are the statutes and the rules that you should be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. And how consistent God is throughout all Scripture. Now, someone might say, well, that's the Old Testament. I'm free in Christ to do what I want. Really? Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll do anything you want. Is that what he said? You'll do what? You'll keep my what? Commandments. Not suggestions, not guidance. Yes, it is the word commandment, as in Ten Commandments. Those sorts of, that level Absolutely, you're free in Christ. You're freed from the stain of sin. You're freed from the eternal consequences of sin. You're freed from your own sin nature. You don't have to sin anymore. If you don't want to, you have a choice you can make. You're not a slave to sin. Absolutely, you're freed. You're freed to finally obey God because that's where your greatest joy and happiness is. What kind of nonsense says, I'm free to disobey God because of Christ? What? That doesn't make any sense at all. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean exploiting the grace of God by believing that somehow since grace covers all sin that now you can sin at will and that's what freedom is. Even Paul, he reminds us in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And the idea here is still wallowing in it, swimming in it, relishing it. No, rather, we take our cue from Peter, who quotes Leviticus 11 when he reminds us in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And listen, this is so important. Holiness and obedience is not meant to be a chore. It is meant to be a God-given way to express your love to God to express your, your affection, to express your devotion, to express your allegiance. God doesn't want your words. He wants your life. He doesn't want external shows of religiosity. He wants a heart that yearns to please Him, that is constantly asking the question, what would be most pleasing to God in this situation? What would give God the most glory? What would give Him honor? What would make Him look good? What would make God look big? Constantly asking that question because you desire that. What a great sign in your own heart that you have come to faith in Christ, that you yearn to obey Him. And I just have to say this, if you believe that being a Christian means that being forgiven means you can do whatever you like, then you're not a Christian. It's that simple. Because the love of God, the love for God doesn't abide in you. John 15.10 says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. There's one law, one mediator, one Lord, one love. Fifth, the truly saved person believes in one promise. One promise. Now you might say, and I've, I've heard many of you say this to me and to some of our other leaders, I do desire to live a a holy life. I I yearn for that, but so often I fail. So often I miss the mark. I I struggle with anger or selfishness or the lusts of my flesh. Sometimes I want to sin and I just decide to do it. 
Well, the key word here is desire. If you love the Lord as a truly redeemed believer, then your desire to sin, while there may be momentary desires that you give into, your desire to sin has been replaced by a desire to serve Christ. And how wonderful it is to know that your salvation is not kept secure by you keeping your promises. We would all be doomed, but rather by God keeping his promises. Look with me at chapter 7. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, God commands Israel not to fraternize with ungodly neighbors. We'll begin in verse 2. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. They shall, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Then beginning in verse 17 all the way through verse 26, God commands them not only to not fraternize with their ungodly neighbors, but not to be afraid of them, not live in fear. Verse 17, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Why did God give Israel the Red Sea experience? Because they could always look back and nothing's ever going to be more dangerous than that. The biggest army on planet Earth following you through two walls of water? What could be worse? But in the middle of the chapter, God gives the reason not to fraternize with the ungodly neighbors, and he gives the reason to not be afraid of the ungodly nations. Verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. See also doctrine of election. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Israel's calling and privilege is because of God's choice. It's because of God's steadfast love. He is a covenant-keeping God. And now with the law of Moses becoming obsolete, With the coming of the new covenant in Christ, God is still a covenant-keeping God. The new covenant is so important for us, and we have to remember, it's not the new hope, it's not the new possibility, it's not the new gamble, it's not the new good luck with that, it's not the new speculation on eternity, it is the new covenant, kept certain by a covenant-keeping God. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 5, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And he says this, in fact, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have, that you possess, that you have attained to eternal life. 
Jesus prayed in John 17, 24. He said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus just prayed to the Father to make sure every one of you who believe in him make it to heaven. To those who know Christ as Savior and Lord, there is one promise. The promise of God's faithfulness and covenant-keeping love. There's one law, one mediator, one Lord, one love, one promise. Sixth, you notice I'm not telling you how many we're doing. The truly saved person believes in one remembrance. One remembrance. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, sometimes this confuses people. Wait a minute. Did God not know what was in their heart? No, that's not the point. From a human standpoint, God is testing to see what Israel's heart is, their true heart. But we know that God is all-knowing, so he knows that already. The emphasis of the testing is for Israel to see their heart, for them to see their own response. And their testing was to make them always remember upon whom they are truly reliant. Verse 3, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Oh, God brings suffering into your life to teach you to trust him. Verse four, your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And we see in this chapter an emphasis on remembering. Verse 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Don't forget the grace of God, is what he's saying. Verse 12, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's saying here, don't be vain. Don't lift your heart up. Don't forget that it was God who brought you out of slavery. That you used to be a slave. You might have wealth now, but you were a slave. And similarly, when they're settled in the land and prosperous, God warns them. Verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Verse 17. Beware lest you say in your heart. If you know your Bible, you know that that is the language of Satan. That is satanic language. Where else do we hear that? Isaiah 14 records the fall of Satan. Verse 12 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
God is warning Israel, don't think themselves more than they are and don't think that they don't need the, the grace of God. That somehow they're deserving. You know, if we could interview Moses and we could say, what things should I beware of that could cause my relationship with God to be tainted or incur the anger of God? From this chapter, he would tell us, beware of forgetting the grace of God. Verse 2, remember. Verse 11, don't forget. He would tell us, beware of becoming spiritually proud. Verse 14, then your heart will be lifted up. He would tell us, beware of letting your success inebriate you. Verse 13, when material success or, or some time of peace in your life comes, you think, well, I must deserve this somehow. And Moses would say, beware of letting false security deceive you. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 19, false security. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. I don't think that this generation of Israelites could have possibly fathom the fact that future generations in Jerusalem, surrounded by hordes of Babylonians, would be starving and would be resorting to eating their dead children as the judgment of God came upon them. If only they had listened. We don't alter reality and say that somehow we came to God because we discerned our own need. We don't alter the reality and say that we came to God because he saw something good and nice in us that made him want to save us. I think we could actually make the case from 1 Corinthians 1 that God took the very worst of the worst and turned them into Christians. No, the reality is, is that he plucked us out of our sin. He plucked you out of your rebellion when you didn't know you were in sin and in rebellion. And maybe you didn't particularly want to be saved from your sin and your rebellion. Instead, Jesus said it this way, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How do you explain salvation? Whoosh. I don't know where it came from. I just know God saved me. What's our one remembrance? Very simple. It is by grace you have been saved. That's our one remembrance. There's one law, one mediator, one Lord, one love, one promise, one remembrance. Seventh, the truly saved person believes in one caution. One caution. Now, we're still in the general stipulations section and Moses overwhelms the second generation of Israelites with a major warning, a major caution. And he begins by introducing this major caution. Chapter 9, verse 1. Here, O Israel, you were to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Here comes the warning. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. 
It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. That's just the introduction to the warning. And now God brings up the awful day, the horrible day in the life of Israel. And for the rest of chapter 9 and 11 verses into chapter 10, Moses goes into exquisite, painful, horrifying detail about the incident in which while Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God, Israel made an idol to worship. They made a golden calf. This is like a parent sitting down with a child and saying, remember this thing you did? I'm going to spend the next hour outlining the details of this horrible sin that you committed, and you're going to listen to every one of them again. And that's what Moses does here. What is the one caution? The one caution is, give your hearts a chance to remember what the most heinous sin you will ever commit is, and that is watch out for idolatry. Watch out for idolatry. And it takes a monumental amount of time to go through that. All sin is rooted in idolatry. All sin is. That for a moment or for a day or for a week or for longer periods of time, something or someone or some idea has become more important to us than obeying God. Your worship has become transferred to that thing or that want or that desire. Every single sin is traceable to an idol. Every single one. Being easily irritated. That can be traced to the idol of worshiping self as more important than others. Sexual sin can be traced to the idol of believing that you need and deserve certain pleasures. A quarrelsome, argumentative spirit can be traced to the idol of desperately needing to be right or to be in control or to be seen as powerful. So how do you remove idols of the heart? Well, the Apostle Paul gave a very simple formula. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, Here's the formula. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Question, how many idols do dead Christians struggle with? Zero. So what's Paul's formula? Die now to yourself and keep your eyes up. Keep looking up. And now the idol of worship of self is replaced with a renewed heart of looking to Christ, the idol of believing that you need or deserve certain pleasures is replaced in your renewed heart with finding satisfaction in God and God alone. The idol of a desperate need to be right or in control or perceived as powerful is replaced in your renewed heart with the the sovereignty of God which says that all things will be rectified, all things will be vindicated in the end, whether others know that you're right or not. There's one law, one mediator, one Lord, one love, one promise, one remembrance, one caution. One more. The truly saved person believes in one faith. One faith. 
kind of doing this whole message just to get to this part because this is so rich. What a rich testimony of true faith we miss if we fall for the myth that somehow the Old Testament is all about spiritual externals, about religiosity. No, what we're going to see now is a, is a wealth of delight concerning true, real, authentic, internal faith in our God. Beginning in chapter 10, verse 12, Moses gives an exhortation, an appeal, followed by a motivation for that exhortation. Then he follows it up with the same exhortation stated a different way with another motivation. So it's exhortation, motivation, exhortation, motivation, and the exhortations are the same. They're just stated differently. Both appeals, both exhortations basically say this, follow me with a true heart. Follow me with a genuine heart. First exhortation, chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. He's saying, serve the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul. It's for your good. And what's the motivation? Verse 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. What's the motivation? God is Lord over all creation, yet he chose you. God set his love on them. Doesn't this remind you of God's declaration to the Christian in Ephesians 1? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. There's a second exhortation. It's the same as the first one. It's just stated differently. Verse 16, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. What is the point here? A true Israelite is a, is a matter of the heart. It's not just going through a prescribed ritual. And what's the motivation? Verse 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving them food and clothing. In other words, God is all sovereign. He's all powerful. He's all good. He's all loving. He's just simply saying, follow me with a true heart. And so, if Israel is to demonstrate true internal faith, then what will happen? Chapter 11, verse 1, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His rules, and His commandments always. Verse 8, You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land. Verse 18, Verse 13, rather. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, verse 18. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. In other words, everything you do and they shall be frontless between your eyes, everything you think. Verse 22. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to them. You think God is getting his point across? That's what love is. And and here's their choice. It's a very simple choice. Verse 26. 
See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And just how important is this choice to demonstrate true, internal, saving faith? God is going to prescribe that they go through a ceremony. This is a ceremony to drive these truths deeply into their hearts, to affirm the blessings and the curses for obedience and disobedience. And here's a description of it, a short description. Verse 29. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun, in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the Oak of Moray? That's a map right there. Here's how to find those two mountains. Verse 31. For you are the cross over the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land, that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I'm setting before you today. Okay, so what is this that they're going to have to do? Once they get into their land, after they cross the Jordan, the whole nation was to gather together at the base of these two mountains. They're right next to each other. Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. They're right next door to each other. And here they were to affirm their agreement to this covenant. Deuteronomy 27, you don't have to turn there, but it gives more details. And here's what's going to happen. They're going to take half of the tribes of Israel and they're going to go stand on Mount Gerizim. Then the other half, the other tribes of Israel are going to go stand on Mount Ebal. And there to be a living illustration. On one side is the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the other side, a whole valley away on a whole different mountain are the curses on Mount Ebal. Then the Levites were to begin shouting the laws of God. And after every law, all the people shall answer by saying, Amen. So here's how this goes. Deuteronomy 27, 14. And I'm just going to read a little bit of this because it goes on for a long time. The Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. All the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. This goes on and on and on. What are they doing here? What God is going to make them do, I want you to picture that you have six children. And you take six children out into your backyard. And you have made two piles of dirt. And you say, three of you, you will go to the mountain of blessing. Three of you, you shall go to the Mount of Curses. Now, here's what Dad says. Dad says, you shall clean your room when you're told. Amen. You shall obey your mother. And the kids say, amen. You shall do everything I say with a clean heart. Amen. You go through all the rules of the house. Now, let's picture this mountain of blessing. 
all the kids, go over to the mountain of blessing. So now they're all in the mountain of blessing. And you say, the mountain of blessing includes things like food and shelter and, and not getting your rear ends whacked and enjoying the fellowship of the family, not spending the evening in your room in, instead of watching a movie with the family. All these blessings I'm going to give to you and they're all free because we love you. Because you obey and we're blessing you. Now, all the kids, go over to the Mount of Curses. So all the kids go scurrying over there. The Mount of Curses represents spankings you won't forget until you're 90. It represents not getting to do anything fun. Disneyland, forget it. It represents having to apologize in front of people that you've offended. It represents having to mop floors with a toothbrush. It represents all the ways that I can make your life absolutely miserable. Now, kids, which mountain do you want to be on? And they all start going over to the mountain of blessing. What a great dad our Heavenly Father is. Literally makes them stand on two mountains and say, which one do you want? And he makes them say amen to all the rules of the household. Try that with your kids. I'd like to see that, actually. (laughs) What is God trying to get at? Don't just obey rules. Love me. Yearn to obey me. True internal reality of faith in God is expressed in the yearning desire to obey him. There's one law, one mediator, one Lord, one love, one promise, one remembrance, one caution, one faith. Now, this concept of oneness and the singularity of the way to come to God probably sounds a little bit familiar to you. Very similar, in fact, because God never changes. So why wouldn't the new covenant be similar? Ephesians 4 says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. If you've come to saving faith in Christ, you are one of his captives, one at the battle of Golgotha, one at the battle of the cross on which he paid the penalty for the sins of all who would trust in him for forgiveness. So what does the truly saved person believe? There's one body, all the saved, one spirit by which we are saved, one hope of salvation which is in Christ alone, one Lord whom we serve and no other, one faith, the object of our faith is Christ, one baptism, the bringing in of the lost into the church of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, and one God and Father of all. Different covenant, same faith. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your consistency that we need not guess that in various times and epochs and eras that you change the way to know you. The way has always been the same, and that is through the revelation of your word, through repentance of sin, and through having true internal faith, which is a gift from you. I pray for any hearing this, Lord, who have gone through this list of the things you must believe to be truly saved and that they doubt that Christ has not been Lord in their life. They have had two Lords. They've tried to make God Lord, but also they retain ownership of much of their lives. I pray that those doubts would turn now to repentance, 
and turn to humble acknowledgement of sin. And for all who know you here in this room, Lord, I am so thankful for these measures, these understandings of how we know that we're saved. And I, I pray that it has resonated in their hearts and it's given all of us confidence that in that glorious day when we breathe our last, when our heart beats for the last time, when our eyes flutter closed, that we may go home with a smile knowing that you are a covenant-keeping God. We trust you, Lord. We trust you with our lives. We trust you with our eternal destiny. We trust you with our final moments on this earth. We trust you that to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord, at home with you. And so affirm in our hearts the security of our salvation so that we might live with confidence and smile with anticipation of our final day on this earth. We thank you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen.